0: <clears throat> this is a Romy cast. One, two, three, four.
1: Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I
0: play the uh, bass uh, When I play the drums. When I play a guitar and I too play a guitar. Mark, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Bless you. What <laughs> course Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, no, 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 no. It's
1: too true. Go. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we wanted to do, yeah. and do what we wanted to do. If you think it was good, keep it you don't, scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep
0: that one. market fab. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me, and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. I will mention that this is the award-winning podcast, The Walrus Was Paul, This podcast was voted winner, Outstanding Music Series, at the 2022 Canadian Podcast Awards. This episode is a special edition, special in that we are stepping outside of the usual format, where I speak with usually a musician about his or her favorite Beatles or Beatles solo record, and also about their work. Over the coming weeks and months, the plan is to do some episodes that break away from that format. Uh, For example, recently I did an episode with musician Stephen Stanley where he talked about his favorite Beatles guitar tracks. So, not an album, but more of a theme. So, we have a few of those coming up in the coming weeks and months. We're still going to do the normal format as well, but I I just want to mix it up a little bit. So, in this episode, we are welcoming one of the most well-known voices and talents in the world of marketing and advertising Terry O'Reilly. Terry is the creator and host of the internationally recognized podcast, Under the Influence. In a nutshell, uh, and this doesn't totally do it justice, but in a nutshell, the podcast looks at the world of advertising and marketing. It has over a million listeners per week in Canada alone, and also sizable listening audiences in the United States and in Europe now, Terry is also, for our purposes, a huge Beatles fan and Beatles memorabilia collector. He was the co-founder and editor of Beatleology magazine. That may ring a bell for some of you. It doesn't publish anymore, but it was a magazine that was dedicated to the serious Beatles fan and Serious Beatles memorabilia collector. You can still track down back issues of that magazine. They poke around on eBay, and you can even go to, uh, to the website, beetleology.com, if you want to buy back issues. But more about that a little bit later. You can find out more about Terry O'Reilly by visiting his website, terryoreilly.ca. Uh, You can find Under the Influence wherever you get your podcasts or you can listen to it on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM Channel 169 or on WBEZ in Chicago. The website for this podcast is romicast.com, and if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is a special episode of Series 3. You can find all of the other episodes from Series 3, as well as episodes from Series 1 and Series 2, right there at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. So, let's bring in, without further ado, Terry O'Reilly, marketing expert, Beatles fan, Beatles collector. Terry, a pleasure to meet you, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about the
1: Beatles. Well, this is my favorite subject, Paul, so thanks for having me.
0: Well, you sort of, uh, you know, I'll draw a Beatles analogy here because you are a noted advertising expert. You have an outstanding podcast under the influence where you talk about uh, advertising and marketing and uh, strongly urge you, dear listener, to seek it out and give a listen. It's fascinating insight uh, into something that is literally around us all the time. Uh, But you sort of, if you will, left The band or left the industry and went off uh, on your own as a solo artist. Uh, And how did you fall into podcasting? What made you want to go in that direction?
1: Well, back in 2005, we pitched uh, our radio show to CBC. It was at that time called the Age of Persuasion. Actually, the first year was called O'Reilly on Advertising. We pitched uh, the show to CBC. Was ba- the pitch basically was this, that as you just said, Paul, advertising is like architecture. It's a, it's in, it's around you everywhere you go. Most people hate advertising; they find it annoying and intrusive. I said to the CBC, but it's actually a fascinating business because it's the study of human nature and nobody studies human nature like the advertising industry. So that was 2005. They said they took the show which was which we never thought in a million years they would because why would the advertising free CBC take a show on about <laughs> advertising? But they said we'll take it which was which uh completely shocked us. Uh they took us on as a summer replacement series in 2005. So we were on for July and August when the first episode aired Paul we we braced ourselves for blowback from cbc listeners and it was the complete opposite people were were kind and curious and said tell us more so about probably about the first week of august cbc said we're going to we're going to keep you on full time we're going to keep your show so suddenly we we retooled the show to become the age of persuasion because now we knew we had a long arc to the show ahead of us and then in 2011 uh, I uh, my producing partner left to do other projects so I retooled the show to become under the influence because so much had changed Paul since 2005 because there was no iPhone, no YouTube <laughs> like no social media like so much had changed in the uh, intervening years so under the influence became uh, on board in I think 2011 and that's the year I started podcasting. And I had I was ready to podcast earlier than that. I was waiting for CBC to clear music rights because I have a, a lot of needle drop in my CBC version, mm-hmm. and they kept saying we're close. It's you know we're we're very close to signing a contract. So every year I'd hear that, and then I just got tired of waiting. So I issued my first podcast in 2011 and took out all the copyright music, and then just replaced it with stock music. And that's, and we've been podcasting now since then, which is how many years is that? It's like uh, 13 years or something.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, seek it out, uh, dear listener. Uh, it's uh, under the influence and it is, again, uh, it, it's about advertising, but that's, that's not doing it. A service. Uh, it is about human nature and anthropology. Really, uh, it's it's the yeah. way the way people react. Uh, and we are going to bolt this on to the context of the Beatles, who I know you love. You approached me yep. and said, "Hey, you know what about you know this kind of an angle on talking about the Beatles?" And I, I gave it some thought. So we're going to break it down into sort of three bite-sized sections with the Fab. So we'll talk about the early days, stepping into the world of fan clubs and merchandising and touring and all that that brought. uh, Innovations from the Beatles. Then there's sort of the the visual element uh, that's worth exploring. Their movies, what we now refer to as music videos, they were called promo videos at the time or promo films. Uh, And and even the album covers, uh, definitely marketing and also very different from their contemporaries. So there's that aspect. And then there's kind of a fun one. There was the entire Apple core enterprise setting up their own label publisher for all things Beatles and creative related and they had some amazingly sought after promotional items uh, specific to that company Uh, and uh, you're also an avid and knowledgeable collector yourself so we'll, we'll bundle all that in into the three sections and I thought maybe we'd set the mood for each section with a track sort of specific to that topic or era so early days What's the track you've chosen?
1: I chose I Want to Hold Your Hand because we all know that that was the song that really launched them in North America. That was the thing that just lit North America on fire. And I have to say, every time I hear that song, to this day, I get chills. I don't know what it is about that song. The energy. um, I remember interviewing Max Weinberg. Uh, for our for Beatology magazine and he said, you know that song, the way that Ringo kept the hi hat shimmering through that whole song added to the energy, I mean, an aspect I'd never thought of before. But there's something about that song that just reignites my love of the band every time I hear it. Oh yeah, I'll Tell you something. I think you'll understand.
0: Say that something written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney in the basement, famously, of Jane Asher's parents' house in Wimpole Street in London. A couple of recollections. Lennon says, we wrote a lot of stuff together, one-on-one, eyeball-to-eyeball, like in I Want to Hold Your Hand. I remember when we got the chord that made the song. We were in Jane Asher's house, downstairs in the cellar, playing on the piano at the same time, and we had the, oh you got that something, and Paul hits this chord, and i turn to him and say that's it i said do that again in those days we really used to absolutely write like that both playing into each other's nose i'm with you this one to me th- this more than anything is the song that launched them in north america and it will always be thus.
1: peter asher i saw an interview with him the other day and uh paul came bounding up the stairs at the at the asher's house and said come on down and listen to this new song john and i just wrote so he ran down the stairs with Paul, and they and they played him that song, which is probably the first time anybody else had ever heard that song. But I'm I was fascinated by the fact they wrote it on the piano. It's not a piano song, right?
0: Yeah, no, it's yeah, definitely guitar driven. And and you're right, uh, you know Max Weinberg, a drummer of Great Note, uh, pointing out the fact that uh, yeah, that beautiful shimmering. Symbol, mm-hmm. high hat. It
1: never lets up, right? It never lets up for the whole song. It just keeps going. Now, what
0: about let's tie marketing into this? The song took life in the United States in a very unusual way. Uh, it was I don't know if it was intentional marketing, but I'm really I'm talking about the story of the radio station in Washington starting to play it. Are you familiar with that one?
1: I don't know if I remember the beats of that story, Paul. It rings a bell with me. Well, it was
0: interesting because the Beatles of course 1963 was the year they broke in the UK. They'd released their first single Love Me Do in October of 62. Their first number one single Please Please Me comes out in January of 63 and and they're sort of going there. They were getting a little bit of traction in Canada. In the in the United States they were not. Um, and right. what happened? I was just going through looking at this. There was there was a girl who had been in the uk and had heard or seen the beatles playing this song and she came back to her home which was washington dc and she got a hold of the dj a dj at the station a guy named carol james and he said you know this record's really great you should get it and play it and i think people would like it so he gets a copy of the record plays it and it turns into a hit so that might have been an early example of viral marketing,
1: absolutely. and I imagine that, w- that would without have been on the capital label by then because <laughs> v j and you know the other labels that picked them up early had m- m- a minor successes right well capital hadn't yeah. released it
0: so yes it was capital but they hadn't released it and they threatened to seek a court order banning the airplay of this song because imports weren't a thing back then right. yeah, you couldn't go right. but then it caught fire uh here's the viral part uh stations in chicago and st louis picked it up and uh carol james and wwdc basically told capital to go stick it in their hat uh and then capital <laughs> sat back and went you know this is some pretty good publicity we could take advantage of and they released right. it ahead
1: of schedule right such a great story so can we call that viral marketing i would call that viral marketing because it really you know it wasn't it wasn't rooted in a, in a paid for advertising campaign so that was definitely viral
0: Uh, And it took off. Uh, Demand was insatiable. In the first three days alone, a quarter million copies had been sold. They were selling 10,000 copies in New York City every hour. Wow. Just imagine that. Uh, Capital was so overloaded by the demand, it contracted part of the job of pressing copies off to their rival, Columbia Records and RCA. Uh, And by the 18th of January, uh, it had exploded. Now, at the time of I Want to Hold Your Hand, Ringo's bass drum was adorned with what is now the famous Beatles logo, with the large B and the drop drop T. Right. How was having a logo like that unique to the Beatles.
1: Well, I don't think any other band had a logo at that time that was that was consistent. And I always and and if you did see anything written on a bass drum it looked like it was sloppily done by the by the drummer with a couple yeah. of magic markers like it was it didn't have a professional feel to it. And I've always thought the Beatles uh, logo was interesting because they stuck with it. It is still a huge part of their marketing today. It wasn't like it was just, you know, 64, 65. It's lasted to this day. And uh, it kind of played into the, uh, um, you know, the pun that Lennon loved about that, which was Beatles are playing off the crickets, but it was beat music. So he wanted it, you know, the drop team made sure everybody got the joke. And I think if I remember this story, Paul, it was really, uh, I think it was a drum st- uh, an artist in a drum store when Ringo was buying his drums, a Ludwig uh, drum store that actually did the hand lettering on that.
0: It was designed on the spot by a guy named Ivor Arbiter, or Arbiter, right. who owned a, a shop called Drum City, and Ringo had gone in looking for a new drum kit, and... Brian Epstein, typical manager, uh, didn't want to pay for the drums, <laughs> so uh, Arbiters, Arbiter arbiter, arbiter, refused to let him have them for nothing, so they negotiated, and eventually, Arbiter agreed to trade the drums in return uh, for Ringo's used kit, and... He said he wanted Ludwig's name to appear on the bass drumhead as he'd recently begun a distribution deal with the company. So Epstein agrees, but then he says, but I want the Beatles name on it, too, on the spot. Arbiter designs the famous Drop T logo. He hastily sketches it as the story goes onto a scrap of paper with the capital B and the Drop T to emphasize the word beat, as you pointed out. Um, <laughs> Drum City was paid the, the princely sum of five pounds for (laughs) designing the artwork. It
1: is astounding. Astounding. Five pounds. That's like the Nike logo. I think uh, Phil Knight got a um, a designer to design the swoosh and paid her $35. Because no one knows at that time it's going to be big, right? Everybody's like, they were just a a small group in Liverpool and Phil Knight was selling sneakers out of the trunk of his car at that time,
0: right? Mm -hmm. So uh, so they were ahead of their time then in that sense with the logo. But... uh, but with the touring, which subsequently they did uh, you know in the United States, of course, really, where they broke, um, an integral part of any touring mechanism now uh, and ban revenue plan is uh, what they call merch merchandising, yep. T-shirts, hats, whatever you can put a logo on. Where were the Beatles on this trajectory based on your knowledge in 1963? Were they ahead of the curve, behind the curve, at the curve?
1: Well, Epstein definitely took a, a page out of Elvis Presley's merchandising and Colonel Parker, because I think Elvis had sold something like twenty million dollars worth of merchandise in nineteen fifty-seven alone. Like it's it was extraordinary, and that really hadn't been done before. Even when you look back at Sinatra, who had his own Sinatra Mania, screaming girls back in the forties, it wasn't there wasn't merch happening like that. So Colonel Parker really pioneered that. The problem with, with Brian Epstein was he was too busy to look after it. He had, you know, he the Beatles were busy. He had all his other Liverpool bands he was managing. So he literally gave the gave it away to um, somebody in the United States and said, you look after it, just give us a royalty. And the, and the deal he struck apparently was 90-10, 10% to the Beatles. 90 percent to this guy in the states which was just extraordinary because that you know some estimates are that they lost something between 70 and 100 million dollars with that deal epstein was once he saw that the merchandise which was sell tab i think that's how you pronounce that yeah paul's l tab yeah, Beatles, spe-
0: Beatles spelled backwards
1: <laughs> right um once Epstein realized his mistake he really panicked and I think he renegotiated it eventually to be 49% to the Beatles but he never really told the Beatles how much money they lost from what I've always read and and I've also read that it was a it was something that led to his depression that may have led to his passing to his supposed suicide. That he was afraid the Beatles were not going to renew his contract in '67. They'd stopped touring, and the amount of money they had lost on merchandising was so humiliating to him.
0: Well, here's a here's a bit from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it predicted that American teenagers at the time would spend fifty million during 1964 on wigs, dolls, egg cups, T-shirts, sweatshirts, narrow-legged pants. Uh, And they wrote that Reliance Manufacturing Company's factories were smoking night and day to meet demand and had already sold products valued at the retail value, then, of $2.5 million. Um, The Reliance Shirt Corporation paid $100,000 for a license and sold over a million Beatles t-shirts in three days. Uh, Remco Toys produced a hundred thousand Beatles dolls and had orders for another five hundred thousand. Uh and the Lowell Toy Corporation were selling Beetle wigs, something I could use these days. Uh Me too. faster than, than they could produce them. Uh they were producing thirty five thousand Beatles wigs per day. Wow. Uh, so amazing.
1: But yeah, it so was Nicky Bern, that guy that took over that in the United States. Imagine the money he made. I mean, I, th- I think he was flying to meetings in helicopters. He was, sp- he was spending like a drunken sailor. He couldn't believe the money he was making.
0: So he tr- he tried to follow. Brian Epstein did the model of Colonel Tom Parker, but clearly uh, missed
1: the mark on it. Well, he just he kept he took his eye off the ball. He didn't he really didn't think it would amount to much. And remember this, too, that a lot of bands didn't have merchandising back then, Paul, because no one thought they were going to last. So why, why develop all that you know uh, product when they might just be on the charts for a year and a half, right? So the whole thing was pretty new. You have to give that to Epstein, too. He was really, you know, he was inventing it as he went along, even though he had a bit of an Elvis template to work from.
0: Uh, you made reference to fan clubs Uh What about fan clubs? Like how unusual... Beatles had quite a fan club network. I think you did a recent episode uh, of Under the Influence on fan clubs. So share some of that with me.
1: Well, fan clubs are marketing. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to keep fans happy. It's a way to collect fans. It's a way to have a direct pipeline to fans. But it's also marketing because if you look at the beatles fan clubs in london and, and in in uh, toronto and then later in the states they're talking about upcoming albums upcoming singles what the merchandise is what when the boys were filming their movies or you know they give away all sorts of great 8x10 glossies it was a way to keep the fan club fires burning because those are your super fans and your super fans buy the most uh, merchandise and music and albums of any f- subgroup that a band has your your super fans are your biggest purchasers so fan clubs exist to kind of nurture and bring and, and they're and remember too that super fans are your evangelists. They go out and spread the word. So I mean, they you are really cultivating little mini advertising agencies with all your fans.
0: So did uh, did did uh, you know Elvis had a fan club? I assume. Yeah. How far did Bing Cosby have a fan club? Or Sinatra? Does it go back that far?
1: Uh, Sinatra had a fan club. I remember seeing a Sinatra fan club uh, card membership card on eBay one day. Um, I think Sinatra was probably one of the first to have a fan club, like a legitimate organized fan club with a fan club president and, you know, uh, and an actual marketing plan. So I would say, yeah.
0: All right. Well, so uh, fan club's a big marketing aspect for any band for the reasons you've gone over. Another big one, uh, and the Beatles weren't. I don't think, I'll, I'm curious to hear what you think. They weren't exactly revolutionary in this context, uh, but there's no doubting that movies are a tremendous marketing tool. I mean, the, the first rock and roll movie I can think of that springs to mind is uh, The Girl Can't Help It from 1956. Uh, yep. Little Richard, Fats Domino, Eddie Cochran, The Platters, Gene Vincent, and so on. And then Elvis really took it to another level. Where did the Beatles fall into this?
1: I think the difference between A Hard Day's Night and everything Elvis did was that it was really about the Beatles. Elvis was usually taking on different personas and different portrayals in his movies, right? I think A Hard Day's Night captured the the spirit and the zeitgeist of Beatlemania, which was so fantastic. And the Beatles were themselves, we got to see how witty they were, how funny they were, we got to see them perform, we got to see girls chase them. It, it was kind of the a precursor to a lot of what MTV and Much Music would become later. That kind of uh, cinema verite with the handheld cameras and and we know there's a lot of little trivia in that film too. We we watch uh, Patty Boyd meet George Harrison in that film, right? And they would eventually get married. and I think that film. I think that film had a lot to do with the Beatles' popularity. It wasn't just an ancillary thing. I think it was like, I want to hold your hand, it exploded.
0: Well, I asked you for a song that was a favorite of yours from all the Beatles films. And the films were, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know, but it was A Hard Day's Night in 1964, uh, 1965 Help, Magical Mystery Tour, which was a made-for-TV film that debuted on the BBC in 1967, Uh, the animated feature film Yellow Submarine in 1968, and then Let It Be in 1970. Before we get to your song, I do want to ask you, as a guy who's done worked in the ad industry knows a lot about it uh famously richard lester came from that world richard lester was the director of a hard day's night and help and you talked about that cinema verite style when you watch it terry can you see because it was so unusual at the time can you see that being shot by a director with the eye of somebody who was
1: used to shooting commercials uh, that's an interesting question that you're asking. I think, you know, so many great film directors came out of advertising, which is so interesting, right? You, you, The thing about advertising is you learn to tell a story in a very compact amount of time. And then when you have two a two-hour tableau to work with, then you can really craft a story. You become a really great storyteller because advertising forces that on you. So I can see Lester's uh, advertising influence in there. The same way Ridley Scott was a great commercial director who did Apple's great 1984 spot, and he did that great Chanel Share the Fantasy commercial, if you remember that great one. That's a Ridley Scott commercial, too. A lot of great film directors cut their teeth in advertising, and they're just great storytellers like every section of of a hard day's night is like a commer- a little mini commercial like they're on the train they're running through the station like all those little vignettes are, are like small 60-second commercials, so I can see it.
0: Yeah, and, and, and for me, it always, as somebody who wasn't in the industry, but uh, just putting the pieces together, the the very quick cuts and the being shot off the shoulder, uh, to me, a lot more, uh, certainly at the time, it must have been a lot more the feel of a 30- or 60-second ad than of a feature-length film, because typically back in that day, if you were shooting a film, you used a tripod.
1: No, for sure, for sure. I, there was very little handheld stuff being done in 1964. There, there's, I mean, most classic film directors would take a classic uh, technique of shooting a film, where Lester was really, I mean, he, 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 he did more of a gorilla shoot on that, didn't he? he? It was like he was running around with a guy with a boom and, a, yeah. and he had a camera on his shoulder and he chased the Beatles.
0: Wouldn't you love to see, and I don't know if one exists, I've, I've never said, wouldn't you love to see, they do them now all the time, but a, a making of a heart, you know, where they have somebody shooting, the guy shooting. It must have just been fascinating.
1: I know. Uh, and another little piece of trivia there that Phil Collins is in that movie, right? Phil Collins' mom was a casting director in in london and she was one of the casting directors on that film and she sent a young phil collins whom i don't know how old he would have been in 64 i want to say he was like seven or eight or something like that and he's in that film somewhere like he was one of the extras in that film uh,
0: to me the best beatles film a hard day's night
1: yeah i you know, agree 100 I mean, percent.
0: you know i mean help was fun
1: it um, didn't uh, quite hit the mark the way that a Hard Day's Night did. No, no. It, Hard Day's Night... Even though was, it wasn't color, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It was just so... It was so cool and so good. Now, uh, let's get, get, to, get to you. I asked you for a song that was a favorite of yours from all the Beatles films, and... I I had to look twice because when you think of yeah. a, you know off, the music from like, I don't have to go over it dear listener a hard day's night help fantastic and you went for a song that almost and as much as any Beatles song could ever get lost in the shuffle almost yeah. gets overlooked what song
1: well I know it'll surprise a lot of your listeners I chose for you blue George Harrison from Let It Be. There's something about the sound of that record that I've always loved. I know it's obscure, and I know it's a strange choice. Uh, uh, George is my favorite Beatle, Paul, by the way. I love that he was a dark horse, as per his record label uh, was eventually. Imagine George in that group where he's uh, he's facing the Lennon and McCartney songwriting juggernaut, which would have just made any other writer so absolutely insecure. He had no one else to write with. Ringo really wasn't a, a composer. John and Paul off on their own. And he still managed to write so many great, great songs. And I love the way he lived his life. You know, he had a beautiful home in uh, Henley-on-Thames, and uh, which I uh, walked by the gates of one day. He had, but you probably know this, there was a bronze plaque on, this is while he was still alive, there was a bronze plaque on the gate that said, Something like, get, uh, go away in seven languages, which is very funny, right? <laughs> like English, French, German, Japanese, just so funny, so funny, George. Uh, then... um, anyway, I just love, I love his music, always a little offbeat, always a little different. And I love, I remember uh, I've interviewed musicians in the past, and I remember one musician years ago said to me, it's a good song, but it's a great record. And I I thought, that's a very interesting thing you just said. What do you mean? He said, the song is great, but the way it's recorded, the feel of it, the the, the mic placement, like there's something magical about the the recording process of that record. And I feel that way about For You Blue. Because you're sweet and lovely girl, I love you. Because you're sweet and lovely girl, it's true. I love
0: you more than ever, girl, I do. Well, it uh, shows up in the film, Don't Let It Be, during the section where the Beatles are arriving to start work at their uh, Apple Studios in, uh, on Savile Row in London. Uh, Harrison wrote for You Blue in late 1968 as a love song to Patti Boyd, his wife at the time, uh, in his autobiography... I Me Mine, it's called. He describes the composition as a simple 12-bar song followed by all the normal principles except it's happy-go-lucky. Uh, the song was definitely influenced by Harrison's recent stay in Woodstock in upstate New York. He'd, uh, he'd been hanging around and collaborating with Bob Dylan and jamming with the, the band. It sounds
1: like the band, doesn't it? It
0: yeah. does. It has that feel to it. Uh, it's uh, Harrison on the acoustic, Lennon's on a lap steel, um, Yep performs the uh, the solo on the lap steel and then mccartney comes in with a piano solo uh and uh, you know if, if trivia uh, there's some debate as to what lennon used on the lap steel uh, to, to get that slide effect right. it was, uh, some say it was a cigarette lighter some say it was a shotgun shell uh or there, there was a standard slide that came with the hoffner lap steel which is what he was using uh and then, an interesting musical thing Harrison wanted the song to have a a bad honky-tonk piano sound. So maybe that's a little bit of what your musician friend was referring to. So McCartney did that by intertwining paper between the strings of the piano.
1: Uh, to just,
0: Yeah, just to give it kind of a, a, a funky sound to it. Uh, the vocal was re-recorded by Harrison in uh, January of 1970 at Olympic Sound Studios uh, in mm. London to get that exact. Vocal sound that he was looking for, but yeah, it's a great tune. Um, and was kind yeah, of—I mean,
1: it's, it's not one of the, the the big tunes. It's not one of the ones that are that's spoken of a lot. But I've always loved it. I've always loved the sound of it.
0: It was uh, buried on. the... Uh, well, it wasn't buried. It was a B-side to the Long and Winding yeah. Road single. Uh, and uh, yeah. a few
1: times George got a B-side. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting Let's talk about that just for a quick second, sure, Paul, because that—that's an interesting. It's not really marketing, but. It's interesting to me that John and Paul rarely gave George a B-side, which would have been a lovely thing to toss him for royalties, right? I mean, he rarely... I mean, I think something was the only... I think was the only A-side he ever got All the band was together. It was, yeah. Yeah, it yeah, was. And never really got many B-sides. It's an interesting. Uh, I've always said, you know, if, when people ask you, who, which Beatle would you have liked to sit down and have dinner with? And I, I would choose George. Not just because he's my favorite Beatle, but because he had such an interesting ringside seat to the Lennon and McCartney partnership. I would have just loved to get his point of view on that.
0: Yeah, I find his, his songwriting... it's very interesting and i guess hey it's uh nobody writes hits all the time but i can't imagine the pressure he would have felt internally coming in and having to present something that you've written to your bandmates when your bandmates are writing hit after hit after hit and you know he i think his creative curve was a a later one like no question by the time he hit abbey road uh to have written you know here comes the sun and songs on the
1: album Yeah. yeah
0: i mean two amazing songs but when you go back to the sergeant pepper era or even before that you know while lennon and mccartney you know even 68 coming in towards the white album they're banging off songs like Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, uh, you know, uh, A Day in the Life, and so on and so forth. And he's coming in with uh, It's Only a Northern
1: Song. Um, yes. You know. And within
0: w- You Without You. Within yeah. You Without You, you know, solid song. But I've th-
1: come to love, by the way, that song. I always skipped that song as a kid. When I would played my Sergeant Pepper, i take the needle and skip by it. And now, again, the sound, if you listen to that song on headphones, it is an incredible song. George Martin had something very interesting to say about George. He said he didn't have power in the band, he had influence. And that's an interesting little thing for Martin to say, because if you think about it, it was George that brought them to the Maharishi, it was George that brought them to India, it was George that brought the sitar into their music, which really influence the 60s in a big way if you listen to any stock music paul like when i'm having to take music out of my podcast and put stock music in when i want a 60s vibe and i go through the stock music it's all sitar (laughs) i mean you know if you look at the party that that film that i love by with peter sellers that blake edwards directed you know in 1968 i think it was like it's all sitar it's all george like all that music in that movie is george harrison even though george had nothing to do with it so he had a lot of influence in pop culture from his his third stool in the band, you know?
0: Well, and, you know, continuing down the rabbit hole, when, uh, you know, when you watch the Get Back film, the, the most recent one, uh, and there's the, the famous flowerpot conversation where Lennon and McCartney are discussing uh, George's role in the band and how they had treated him, uh, and they realize that they'd they treated him, you know, they treated him like shit uh, yeah. on some occasions. And, and he was really suffering for it. And you can hear that. That, to me, was just an eye-opener. Uh, that section...
1: When they didn't know in, they were being recorded, right? That yeah. section? Yeah. 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 When,
0: they're, when they're sitting talking and, uh, you know, Peter Jackson was able to, uh, you know, rescue the uh, the conversation from background noise and so on with modern technology. And, and you hear them basically saying, yeah, we've, we've wronged
1: this guy. Um, Even to George Martin said in interviews that they really didn't give George much attention and when they did choose to record one of his songs they recorded it very fast and spent no time on it so they you could feel I'm sure the frustration George had which was fully uh you know executed on all things must pass when he had literally just 3 records full of of material yes. he put out at that record. Right? right he couldn't wait to just Express himself.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 he definitely was overlooked. I think you know, in fairness uh to him, he's competing with arguably the well, best
1: songwriters of, the, of yeah, all time. Yeah, yeah.
0: The, the best songwriting team in the history of pop music, for sure. uh yeah. So that's that's always going to be tough when the, you're that's that's the mirror that's being held up to you, and you're yeah. going to look in it and go, "Can I do that?" uh no, no just to, to circle back to the the aspect of the Beatles on film, you sort of alluded to it, but it fascinates me the most. Is the role that promotional videos, so music videos, as they would come to be called, played for them starting in 1965? I know. How revolutionary was that from a marketing perspective in 1965?
1: I think it was. It was truly revolutionary. Um, interesting. I mean, they had, they were kind of starting to slow down a bit in their touring schedule. Um, I think some of those videos were actually played on the Ed Sullivan Show. Yes, where Ed introduced them like the Beatles were the, You know, he said they're they're on tour, but they sent us this this promotional clip, and then it was Paperback Writer and Rain, and then later on we saw them do Hey Jude and Revolution. I think though, like no other band was really doing that, or if they did, it didn't survive. I you can't really find any examples of that. So I think. The choice to do that was an interesting one. It it was not just that they couldn't make an appearance on Ed Sullivan, but it was a marketing idea. It was, let's send this out because a lot of stations and a lot of networks can pick this up and play this and give us some airtime.
0: From my research, you're exactly right. They were done at the time specifically so that they wouldn't have to make numerous television appearances to promote their music. They could just send a film of them performing yep. the song. Uh, and the first songs they did this for were both sides of the single Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out from 1965. Uh, they worked with a Scottish film director, a guy named Joseph McGrath, and he'd come mm-hmm. into the beach- Beatles orbit when he worked with Richard Lester during the filming of A Hard Day's Night Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah and then previously he'd he'd worked with Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan on The Goon Show which the Beatles were fans of so he would have had some credibility there Uh, then they Recorded two promotional films in 1966 with Michael Lindsay Hogg, remember that name, for Rain and Paperback Writer, uh, shot at Chiswick
1: House. In, uh, in in london uh when i live I, I took a walk i took a walk through there uh a couple of months ago uh
0: when i lived there uh I, that was my neighborhood and my running route went through the grounds of chiswick house every day and i'd, I'd look and go that's the, the spot where they stood uh in the, in the sculpture garden the ground is worn out from people like you and me having right. our photo taken there
1: <laughs> my daughter lives in twickenham so right right close to
0: there The famous film studios. Uh, In 1967, they worked with a guy named Peter Goldman on a couple of slightly surrealistic approaches for Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, uh, during which uh, they don't mime at all. They're just, they're, right. they're riding horses, they're walking, they're, they're, they're and it has reverse motion, jump trees. cuts, yeah, yep. uh, superimposition, okay, ca- then in November of 67, Paul McCartney oversees the shooting of three versions of a promotional film for Yellow, or pardon me, for Hello Goodbye, uh, shot at the Saville Theatre in, uh, Le- Seville Theatre in London, right. uh, and then in 1968, Tony Bramwell of Apple oversees the production of a promotional film for Lady Madonna. Uh, and then in 68, the reason I said to remember that name, Michael Lindsay Hogg comes back into the picture and he does that famous video for... Hey Jude where everybody walks in and joins in and that was the first time the Beatles had performed together since their last show at Candlestick Park in, wow. uh, in 1966 and they were so energized being in front of people that was the match that lit the fire for the creative idea of let's do get back or let it be. Let's do something. Let's, let's play a show somewhere. Yeah. So it all kind wow. of connects together. That's, but a you, lot,
1: that's a lot of promotional films when you do that list, when you go through that list.
0: Yeah. The, the, the just to finish the list, the last one, they did one for revolution as well with Michael Lindsey hogg And then in late October of 1969, Neil Aspinall put together uh, a series of films that had been shot at various Beatles residences of each of the group members with their wife or girlfriend. Uh, and he cut that together and that was the promotional film for something right Uh, right that all the other ones that we know have been done in later years by apple Um, right so those were the ones that were done while the band was together um i can't remember when mtv showed up but uh, it was many years later
1: it was the eighties. Yep, so, I think it was eighty four or something like that, eighty three something, uh, when MTV arrived on the scene. So,
0: and, and 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 Terry, when you think about the the role that music videos play now, um, I mean, it's 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 incredible that they were thinking of that back then. Um, so, I know. So here, here is one. What is it? Based on all of the, the, the shows you've done, the, the, the great people you've worked with over the years, what is it that differentiates that person who has an idea that's ahead of its time from somebody who doesn't? Is there a common trait?
1: Let me think about that for a second. People who have who are visionary, if you want to use that word, are are kind of rebellious. They have a rebellious streak in them. They don't take no for an answer. They they uh the question why does it have to be this way <laughs> is, is peppered throughout their their speech. Um, you also have to be in a in a situation that allows for that kind of thinking too. Like you know, a lot of people say, "I've got this great idea," and then no one will fund it or no one will, will help them with it. So they have to find themselves in a situation that is uh, you know uh, um, sim- simpatico with with trying something new. I mean, that's the for the Beatles. I think that was George Martin, for example. I mean, George was an older guy, you know, white lab coat in the early days you know, really did a lot of classical music, <clears throat> but he had this, this rebellious streak in him that was willing to sit there and listen to Tomorrow Never Knows and say, okay, I love it, let's do it. I mean, that's, that's a pretty amazing moment from George Martin, right? So I think uh, people who, who go out on a limb with ideas, they, they have what I call a fist slam moment. Like, you know, there has to be a better way. There has to be, like, this can't just be this conventional thinking. And then they literally are like a dog with a bone and just just kind of barrel it through. They just they just crash through all the obstacles and barriers to new thinking, which the world's first default position is rejection. <laughs> yes, always. 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 It's the default <laughs> move, right? So you have to have a lot of courage and and fortitude to put forward a new idea. I mean, in advertising, I can tell you on a much smaller scale than the Beatles, of course. But when you're presenting a, an interesting, fresh, new idea to a client in a boardroom, the first answer is no, always. So it's up to you. I mean, the great thing about, or the, the critical s- skill set you have to develop in advertising is you have to be able to learn how to sell your ideas in a boardroom. And that means you have to be able to counter all the objections clients will have to a big idea in, a, in such a way that you calm them down. And then you make the, you know you create a, a, a an atmosphere of approval in that boardroom, right?
0: I wonder. I wasn't able to uncover it in my research. Uh, I'm sure Mark Lewis and Will in his next book, but I I wonder who had the fist slam moment where they were sitting around the Nems offices and saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to go around to all those TV stations and all those radio stations and promote our records? And somebody went, hey. We could just film you performing the song and send it to them.
1: I, I wonder, know. I wonder. It sounds like a Lennon idea to me if I had to pick somebody. <laughs> just, you know, the, 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 the sarcastic toss off remark from Lennon let's just send them a film. <laughs> it sounds like Lennon to me. Uh,
0: so, uh, talk briefly. Uh, albu- our album covers marketing. Yes, no.
1: Yes, they are. And I did an episode, I did a two part episode on that very subject, Paul. Um, not to get too deep into that, but it, it it is marketing. I mean, it's not just design. It's designed to catch an, uh, someone's eye. It's it's designed to capture the essence of that album because every album's got a different tone, right? It's uh designed to capture the essence of the band. Um if you look at the Beatles album covers, I'll say this, they are they stand out from ev- almost everything else in the 60s. I mean, there's thought put into it. It's not just bad typography or it seems to be dashed off by a junior graphic designer at the record label there's real thought put into it going right back to the the very first album the beatles put out where you see them sort of in half shadows and and even that album cover um which is meet the beatles i'm talking about uh, it's it's three beatles and then one below like it's not all four across like there's always some interesting design element going on there right and then when you get into a hard days night and you get into help and you get into rubber soul which is one of their best album covers ever i think and i love on, on that album cover i love the fact that it's only lennon that's looking at you i, I find that just such an interesting little choice there I and had nev- uh,
0: i had never picked up on that i'm going yeah, to take when you look a look at, at that
1: it. yeah he's the only one looking at you which is interesting to me and then you know the the mccartney con- conceptual power of mccartney with sergeant pepper Putting the lyrics on the back of the album for the first time—lyrics had never been reprinted. That was a huge marketing choice there, because you know fans ate that up. You could, you know, you didn't have to guess the lyrics anymore. You could, there they were. Um, and then on and on you go to uh, the classic, you know, the White Album. Going from, you know, the complexity of Sgt. Pepper to then just the the sheer white whiteness of the of the White Album with just the embossed title, which is such an interesting choice to do that and uh, and then of course the iconic abbey road which uh again another mccartney brilliant masterstroke. stroke and remember the story behind that which is so interesting to me and so funny remember they were thinking we're gonna go to we're gonna call the everest yeah so let's take the helicopter and drop us on the top of everest and we'll get our photo taken up there and everybody's like oh i can't be bothered to go all the way across the world to everest why don't we just cross the street yes <laughs> such a funny flip on that right
0: yeah no I, I i it's that's i mean happenstance uh so many times in the in the beetle world it's it's just something that at the time seemed you know innocuous and then turned yeah. out to be a meister stroke and that was one and it was you tell the story accurately it was uh for, you know ah oh, can't be arsed L- let's just go outside and do it let's go yeah. out and get it what's done
1: the, what's the least we can do it and yeah. that was walk outside.
0: Yeah, like <laughs> using the word correctly, it was almost literally the least they could do. They went outside in front of the recording studio, walked across the road a few times, done.
1: Um, and, and look at how, how iconic that flip decision, which was the polar opposite of let's go to the top of Mount Everest, maybe became their most famous album cover, right?
0: You could, well, what... You could argue that. So what's your favorite? You got to pick one of the original covers.
1: Uh, I would have to say it is Abbey Road. Okay. I uh, really do think. And, and how many times it's been copied and parodied? Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I could pick one. I mean, the, the two you referenced uh, with the Beatles, which is the famous half shadow Uh, Robert Freeman took that photograph Uh, and the other one that that you pointed out Rubber Soul also a Robert Freeman photograph and of course the famous story there is he showed up to show the Beatles back then they did it with a slide projector to show him some slides of of, uh, candidates for the front cover and he had a uh, piece of white cardboard the same dimension as an album cover propped up on a chair and he was flipping through the slides and somebody bumped the chair and the piece of cardboard moved and created that elongate effect. Yeah. There's another happenstance, right? And and one of the Beatles said, "Let's do that. Can we do that?"
1: Uh, and now, well, he, you know, here's the other thing that you bring up, which is interesting, Paul. The Beatles were really open to happenstance, open to uh, happy collisions. Yeah. You know, even uh, like there's there's mistakes they made in songs that they left in. There's the fact that Paul drops the F-bomb in Hey Jude right before the na-na-na's start, which, you know, uh, Lennon thought was funny and they just reduced it a little bit in the mix. But if you listen to it, there it is. I mean, they, they just, they were willing to roll with with things just happening and not, they weren't pristine with their work. And even in advertising, I always, as a director, I always would choose the best, I would choose to take that felt best, not the best take, in other words, I was not that drawn to the perfect take. I was drawn to the take that made me laugh or had a little weird bit of timing in it that made it unusual. And I think the Beatles were kind of like that, too. They went for feel, not perfection. They went for kind of a imperfect perfection
0: uh some of the other people who worked in their covers bob Whitaker, another photographer who they liked um who he shot the did he do the
1: uh, famous uh uh butcher cover uh he did
0: indeed uh the yep. sort of surrealist butcher cover uh also shot the uh, the back photo on Revolver. Uh, and then uh, Richard Hamilton, famous pop artist who did the cover for The White Album, uh, which right. I, I think was just, and I'm probably reading way too much into it. I've, I think it was, uh, and I don't necessarily mean this in a bad way, uh, but it was a degree of arrogance. It was, you know what, we just did this album cover that was so unprecedented, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and everybody would have been going, well, what are they going to do now? And with their arrogance, they were able to come back and say, what are we going to do? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> we're going to do a <laughs> blank cover with a serial number on it. That's what we're going to do.
1: So true. Nothing. Interesting, though, They a couple of marketing uh, elements to that That nothingness of the white album every one of them was numbered so you knew how far you were from the from the first one which is an interesting little little tidbit right yes and if you look at as a collector like i am i mean when you see white albums with low numbers on them they're worth a lot of money and then inside that album of course there were four eight by ten glossies of the beatles and there was a big poster that pulled out so there, there were a lot of goodies inside that album well, meant to sell the album
0: more marketing, Terry. Right, like when you get into the certainly starting with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, where you got the cardboard cutouts, you know, and the fake mustache and so on. So there was, the, and there was the uh, in the original copies, there was the sort of acid drenched uh, inner jacket designed Steve, by, the, yeah, right, yeah. D- designed by the Fool. Uh, right. So you had that. Then you get into the white album where you have the posters and the the eight by tens inside, uh, and then you get to let it be and there was the a box book set. yeah there was like so we
1: were like, the states didn't get that right just the uk and canada got that i think oh <laughs> I, i've got really mine right? have you got one yeah i oh yes uh, i have mine <laughs> I have in the original days yeah and that was like it, it put the box pulled out there was a beautiful beautiful book inside yeah like it was really something y- right
0: yes well we'll get to your collection in a second but for but i want to i want to get into the apple era now uh and this of course is a Maybe we could uh, collaborate on this. It's a multi-episode podcast going on for years to cover the fiasco that was that was Apple, which was yeah. formed in January of 1968. Uh, the ship was, of course, righted many years ago, still operating as a private limited company, uh, revenues in the 20 million pound uh, per year UK range, uh, owned by McCartney, Starr, and the estates of George Harrison and John Lennon. So before we plow into that, the song you chose from the Apple era?
1: Everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey. Now again, another obscure, weird choice. I imagine people are thinking, but there's something about that record, Paul. That's a that's a blistering rock record, and there's uh, I love the sound of it. Um, I did. I was a, a, a producer on. Uh, we can talk about this later if you like. I did some radio shows on the Beatles. We did a six hour uh, radio show on John Lennon bram nash did the uh narration on wow. it and we used that song as the as the song that inch that introduced that show every every week and it was something about that song that i love lennon's said in uh, uh um historically that it was about him and yoko yes but i think he wrote that before he met yoko so i, I think he was kind of doing a little reverse engineering there but uh he was talking about you know you, you have a public side and you have a private side in your life and I think that was the underlying current of that song uh,
0: the quote from Lennon that I found was uh, this was t- just a sort of nice line that I made into a song it was about me and Yoko everybody seemed to be paranoid except for us two who were in the glow of love everything is clear and open when you're in love everybody was sort of tense around us you know what's she doing here at the session is she with him all this sort of madness is going on around us because we just happen to want to be together at the time that was a quote from John Lennon uh, also speculated that although Lennon never confirmed this uh, that it was referring to heroin use um, you know mm. a monkey a monkey on the back is a, an old jazz term for heroin addiction um, and they were
1: and he was dabbling in that at the time. They wasn't were,
0: he? yeah, they were taking. Uh, McCartney's recollection is this uh, quote: "He was getting into harder drugs than we'd been into, and so his songs were taking on more references to heroin. Until that point, we had made rather mild, oblique references to pot or LSD. Now John started talking about fixes and monkeys, and it was a harder terminology which the rest of us weren't into. We were disappointed that he was getting into heroin because we didn't really see how we could help him. We just hoped." It wouldn't go too far in actual fact he did end up clean but this was the period when he was on it it was a tough period for john but often that adversity and that craziness can lead to good art as i think it did in this case paul mccartney said interesting. that yeah interesting uh so what about apple from a marketing standpoint
1: okay i love there's so much about apple i love to begin with the label is so fantastic. The, the Granny Green Apple, which I think was inspired by a René Magritte yes. painting that Paul had in his home. But then what I love most is the sliced apple on, on side B. That was such a, a stroke of genius, right? So their, their label didn't look like any other label. It didn't look corporate. It was a creative label, and I love that. And then Apple itself d- uh, p- pumped out a lot of great merchandise. And and all of it's very collectible to this day, and very expensive. I think you have an Apple Watch, Paul. I I, I lust after one of those. I, it's so hard to find those.
0: I found it when I lived in London uh, at a shop and it was authenticated and it wasn't that expensive like it was expensive but, but it, it was expensive but not the reason it wasn't that expensive was because it didn't work uh mm-hmm. it had the original strap so i found uh in another watch shop straps that were pretty close to the originals although i did keep the originals i have them in a box and then i took the watch to a watchmaker and i said can you just you know fix the the, the mechanism in this and they were fairly cheaply made watches. And he took yes. took the back off and he put in, it's a mechanical watch that you have to wind every day. And he put in the new mechanism and sealed it back up. And I use it to this day. You wind it and it works and it keeps accurate time.
1: But it's so, yes. it's so cool. It's so cool. So cool, that item. I've always wanted to have one of those. And the Beatles put out lots of stuff. I mean, they put out a, a dartboard. Yes. Which I was kind of sniffing around. I saw one for uh, for sale like it's it's like you know seven thousand pounds <laughs> to buy a, an Apple dartboard. That's how valuable they are and how rare they are. And you know, Beetle Apple rather uh, match cover matchbooks, which I have, and uh, Apple um, like actually like um, what would you call it? Um, uh, paperweights, yes. Apple paper like they put out a lot of interesting material. They also put out a lot of interesting ads too. There was the Apple boutique which of course existed on Baker Street where a lot of the this merchandise was sold. Apple of course was the Beatles trying to put wrap their arms around their business having lost Brian Epstein in 67, right? This was them trying to say somebody has to run our the business of our business. They weren't good at it, but at least that was their try. And yeah. then the Savile Row recording studios and I'm a big I'm a big collector of uh, of letterhead, so I've got a lot of letterhead from the Apple years, Zapple apple Harris songs, all of those oh, things wow
0: i, I only apple. i only have uh i have i'm a big apple guy I, I i don't have your collection but i have the watch and i do have a piece of letterhead um, yeah uh, i've always wanted the one that i really like getting really nerdy here is uh the one that i think it was from apple films and it has words from apple and it has the sort of spiraling off the apple like it's been peeled i always love that I, do, I
1: have that one too yeah oh. i've got a letterhead oh yeah i've got wobble films and uh uh i have you know um ringo's stationery abbey road stationery all and there was a lot of subsidiaries of apple right subsidiaries of apple that as I said, Zappo films and things of that nature. So yeah, I've got all of that. I love it.
0: I did a quick search just for our conversation and I I found just, the, and this was just like nothing, folks. It was a 30-second search. Key rings, Zippo lighters, paperweights, uh, green glass seem to be the valuable ones, money clips, dart boards, uh, the watch, which was made by a company called Old England, uh, no longer uh, functioning. Uh, a big one, and uh, I'd be curious to know whether, whether you've ever seen one, uh, I've always wanted one I don't think I could afford it but it was uh, it was called our first four which was a promotional kit that was put out, the first four records from Apple, which were Hey Jude, Those Were the Days by Mary Hopkins, Sour Milk Sea by Jackie Lomax, and an instrumental called Thingamabob by the Black Dyke Mills Band, and it came came in this beautiful plastic package, very colorful lettering with each of the 45s and then a, a, a beautifully printed bio on the artist. Now, I saw them they go for around 5k
1: uh yeah maybe more have you ever seen one i have never held one in my hand i've seen pictures of it paul but i've never seen one in the flesh well tell me about your collection i uh i've 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 owned a lot of interesting things over the years i mean i have a lot of the you know i have the remcos and the knotters and the running shoes and uh, you know, ticket stubs from Maple Leaf Gardens. I've got a George Harrison ticket stub from Vancouver. Um, Suffolk Downs in Boston, I think it is. But my main uh, love was one-of-a-kind one items, which, of course, is the most expensive <laughs> form of beetle collecting, which led to Beetleology Magazine, which we can talk to in a moment. But I have owned, over the past years, Maybe the biggest piece I owned was the famous Beatle breakup letter. So that's the letter that that John, George, and Ringo wrote to Paul, basically saying they knew were no longer managed by the same manager. That they were going to, going to go with Klein, and Paul was going to go with uh, Belinda's dad. And that's a very famous letter. I mean, there's a lot of. If you look at a lot of books, you'll see uh, you know you'll see that letter. So I own that letter for probably about three or four years, and then I sold it. Okay. I owned a, a Buckingham Palace envelope signed by all four Beatles that they were signed the day they got their MBE medals. So somebody there had... And it was, a, like I say, a Buckingham Palace envelope. So they got the Beatles to sign that. I, ha- I have a, an Alan Williams business card, first manager of the Beatles, pr- uh, pre-Brian Epstein, signed by Alan Williams. I met him at one of the Beatles conventions up in Aurelia, before he died, lovely, lovely, funny, funny man. Uh, I have a couple of other uh, beetle business cards. I used to own a Brian Epstein business card signed by all four Beatles on the back of it. Not Ringo though; it was Pete Best. So that was just pre Ringo wow. Star. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I have. Uh, I have a, a note that Lennon wrote to Fred Seaman, his uh, assistant in April of 1980 as you know John died in December of 1980 but what's interesting in this note is he says he's he's afraid for his safety he said you know the the lock on our front door isn't working and any nutcase can get in here i need you to fix it so it's just he was just aware of his of his safety in 19 April of 1980 which i just find interesting you know historically um but I have a letter from his Aunt Mimi to one of her friends. And in the letter, she says, I will never get over the loss of John.
0: Oh,
1: And I found that was just such a lovely... It's not dated. I, I imagine it's probably from the 90s, that letter maybe. But it's a handwritten letter from Aunt Mimi. Um, and then I have lots of other little things. But uh, my the thing I've always wanted to get most and why I kept selling things, but I still haven't achieved it yet, is I wanted to get a handwritten lyric. From a song, which is the the holy grail of Beetle collectors. The reason we started Beetleology Magazine, if I can jump there for a second, Paul, in 1998, myself and Peter Miniaci and Andrew Croft, we started this magazine was because we were collectors, but we never knew what anything was worth at any given time. And because beetle collecting is so expensive, we we wanted we thought you know there's there's a a gap in the market that we could put out a magazine, do deep dive articles on beetle merchandise, and then talk about what it's worth in this at at this time. So we would you know interview people that had something to do with the merchandise or were around when it was developed or other high profile collectors who you know collectively said you know that piece is worth ten thousand dollars, and then we would be able to tell that story. So. That magazine, interestingly, was used by Sotheby's and all the big auction houses in that period of time because they were using it as a price guide, which is very interesting. Every in- uh, is- issue had an interview with a beetle collector, usually a celebrity. So we interviewed Mark Hamill, yeah. Mr. Star Wars, right? He's a huge beetle collector. I'd worked with him on a commercial, and between takes we started Chit chatting, and we stumbled on the fact we were both Beatle collectors. And he regaled me with all his Beatle memorabilia. And I thought, oh my god, you have a you have a fantastic collection. He told me a great story once. He was on a plane, and George Harrison gets on the plane, and he's about four or five rows ahead of, uh, of Mark Hamill. And Mark's like, oh, I just, I he said, I wanted to send them a note to say how much I I love the Beatles and I love George Harrison. He said, but I. I I decided not to bug him, just to have a professional courtesy of just leaving him alone. And halfway through the flight, the flight attendant brought a note to Mark, and it was from George saying, I'm a big fan of your work. I hope I'm not (laughs) intruding. (laughs) It came from George, right? And I love that story. It's a great story. And, you know, Bill Maher, we interviewed Bill Maher. He's a big collector of the Beatles. We interviewed uh, Max Weinberg, as I was telling you, who has a really great... Here's a great story from Max, by the way. When Springsteen broke up the E Street Band back many years ago, I think he gave them each a million dollars and said, I have to go off and just do solo work now. Uh, Max Weinberg went into a uh, state of depression. Because you can imagine, he's, he's at the top of the world with, with Springsteen, and then Springsteen lets everybody go. Mm-hmm. So he sunk into a deep state of depression He gets a phone call one day from Ringo. And Ringo says, I know what it's like to be the drummer in a band that collapses. Come and spend some time with me in Monaco. Why that's so amazing is he didn't know Ringo. Hmm. They had never met. Ringo heard through the grapevine that he was struggling, drummer to drummer. So he flew to Monaco and spent some time with with Ringo. He said, I spent about two weeks with him. And he said that he he took me right out of my funk. So we had lots of fun in that magazine talking about memorabilia, talking about the worths, the valuations, and interviewing big-time collectors that had interesting uh, collections.
0: Well, let's finish up uh, with a song you name as your favorite Beatles song. Uh, It is the most streamed Beatles song of all time, and it is... Here Comes the Sun.
1: I just love again the sound of that record, Paul. I love the optimism of that record. I think it's the best song on Abbey Road. Although many people think "Something" is the is the best song. I I go with "Here Comes the Sun." I just uh, I love the acoustic guitar in it. I love uh, I love the lyric in it and i never get sick of hearing that song i just never ever if i hear it on on radio if i just catch a a little bit of it walking through a store i've got to stop and listen to the whole thing i love it
0: beautiful song and uh famously written on an acoustic guitar in the garden of eric clapton's house in surrey uh expressing harrison expressing his relief at being away from the tensions within the beatles is his quote which is uh often quoted from the anthology here comes the sun was written at a time when apple was getting like school where we had to go and be businessmen sign this sign that anyway it seems as if winter in england goes on forever and by the time spring comes you really deserve it so one day i decided i was going to sag off apple and i went over to eric clapton's house The relief of not having to go and see all those dopey accountants was wonderful, and I walked around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars and wrote, Here Comes the Sun. Uh, John Lennon does not appear on the song, curiously. Oh,
1: interesting.
0: Yeah, He he was recovering from a car crash that he'd had Mm. while he was holidaying in Scotland with Yoko and her daughter, so he is nowhere to be found. On the song, you have McCartney playing his Rickenbacker bass uh stars on the drums of course harrison is playing a gibson j200 acoustic uh and then he also taped some additional guitar parts using that same acoustic on uh, the empty track uh and then the very understated use one of the first in pop music of the uh, the moog synthesizer or moog synthesizer yes.
1: yep very uh, interesting. Be so, 1969—that's pretty early days for the for the Moog synthesizer. He
0: was, uh, yeah, he was one of the first. It was a fairly recent invention and was a rarity in the UK. Uh, I have read, although not been able to confirm, that Harrison was the owner of the only one in the UK mm. at the time. Uh, and uh, yeah, and and then div- I I remember this uh, one of the bonus DVD blu-ray releases of the martin scorsese documentary uh, living in the material world the, the one on harrison and it features the scene with the uh, danny harrison george's son george martin and giles martin sitting listening to here comes the sun on the multi-tracks and they right. found a hitherto unheard guitar solo which was left Ooh. out of the album mix uh likely recorded by harrison at a later date so uh f- it has been a pleasure. Uh, what are your fauna, final takeaway thoughts on our conversation and the Beatles as marketers, and sort of wrap it all
1: up for us here? Well, I have always loved the band from the '60s, um, but I think the what fascinates me beyond the music, which is number one, of course, is their influence on everything: on fashion, on language, on music, on film um there's an interesting book on 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 their fashion sense right now i saw a brand new book on how they influence fashion but they were also great marketers and that's that appeals to me of course where they they had a sense of you know let's get let's get a logo early and let's stick with it because consistency is everything in branding and they really were consistent that way and the fact that they uh used you know promotional videos to to tour their songs when they couldn't tour everywhere with such an interesting strategy and using movies as a marketing vehicle moving into apple days where you know they had a, that spectacular logo on their records and then uh the apple boutique i mean they were doing things that no other band was doing not just musically but in the in the retail world they were they were merchandising and i i just think when you look back on it and look to it to this day, I mean, every year there's some another great piece of Beatle memorabilia or, or remastered something comes out. I mean, they are master marketers. There's no doubt about that. Uh, that I just look back uh, at them as a band, as an entity, as a business. And I think I, uh, they are a remarkable machine that put out such quality uh, product all the way down the line.
0: Terry, it has been an absolute pleasure uh really enjoyed our conversation from uh, one beatles nerd to another thank you
1: and likewise paul i loved it thanks for having me you can find
0: out more about terry o'reilly by visiting his website terryoreilly.ca. you can find his excellent podcast under the influence wherever you get your podcasts or you can listen to it on cbc radio one Sirius XM Channel 169, or on WBEZ in Chicago. You can also purchase back issues of Beetleology magazine if you are interested by going to the website beatleology.com. If you have enjoyed this episode, or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast and to keep it commercial-free. Any amount helps. If you can afford it, please help out. You can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the support the walrus button. You can follow this podcast on the usual socials on Twitter or X and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the dot at gmail.com. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels also help out. Speaking of helping out, I would like to ask your help right now Uh, as this podcast is going out it is the middle of november and i am planning a walrus was paul christmas special where you dear listener take front and center and the starring role here's what i would like you to do if you want to help out if you're a listener or even if you're a former guest of the podcast as well record an mp3 file where you talk about a Beatles Christmas or holiday season memory. The floor is wide open. Maybe you got a Beatles gift for Christmas. You got an album. You got a movie. Maybe you went and saw a movie. Maybe a sibling, an older sister, an older brother got a Beatles album. Maybe you watched Beatles cartoons on television. Anything related to the Beatles or the Beatles solo work in connection with the Christmas holiday season, okay? What I need you to do is record that memory in an MP3 format, so you can do it on your phone, on your laptop, or whatever, and email it to me. The email address is the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the.romicast at gmail.com. The format should be as follows. Just give your name, and where you live off the top. So for example, hi everybody, I'm Paul Romanock from Oshawa, Ontario, and my Beatles Christmas season memory is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, that's how you do it. So once again, very straightforward. Record that in an MP3 format and email it to me at the.romicast at gmail.com. I need to have everything by December the 20th. That's the deadline, December the 20th. So lots of time to do that, and I want to put together a special The Walrus Was Paul Christmas edition where your memories take front and center stage. Okay? So thanks for that. That's it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk, and I'll talk to you later on. One, two, three,
1: four. Do you ever get tired of